Welcome to Trinity Radio. You found the Christian channel that loves atheists. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be talking about dreams. Dreams are interesting. In the history of religion, uh, God or gods communicate through dreams quite a bit. And of course, this does happen within the Christian framework as well. And so we've got to ask the question, uh, does God do that today? Did he ever really do that? And so that is an interesting, fertile landscape for us to dig into today as we study a little bit about what the Bible has to say about dreams. Now, listen, don't run away when I say the next words that are going to come out of my mouth. But this is in a series through the book of Genesis, verse by verse. Now, you can see this video as a standalone video, so you don't have to have seen the rest, although I, I encourage you to see the rest, because I think the book of Genesis is very profitable for our study, even if you're not a Christian. Uh, that said, um, uh, we're going to be looking today at a story in the Bible that features a lot of communication by God through dreams. Now, within Christianity, there are a couple of different ways of looking at this. There are people, everyone who is an Orthodox Bible-believing Christian believes that God has done this. I mean, here, obviously, in the story we're going to look at today, God's communicating through dreams. Among Christians, the question is more, does he still do that now? And does he still do other things that we might consider to be um, often, uh, you know, uh, revelatory or uh, charismatic gifts of that sort? And there are, there are two kinds of Christians as it comes to this, at least. There are those who are um, there's are those who are called cessationists and cessationists would say those things ceased or ceased for the most part. And they'll always say something like God can do whatever he wants, but they've ceased or ceased for the most part with the deaths of the apostles. And sometimes dreams and, and, and communication through dreams gets thrown into that or visions. Um, and then there are those people who are continuationists who believe that no, 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 there's no evidence, or at least no clear evidence in the new Testament that God has stopped interacting with people the way he did um, in the new Testament period. So you can still have the charismatic gifts. You can still have visions. You can still have dreams. You can still hear the audible voice of God. These kind of things could still happen. Now, um, just it doesn't matter what I believe on this, but just so you know what the person teaching this uh, thinks about it, um, I think you have the right to know that. I am a cautious continuation uh, continuationist. I've never experienced any charismatic abilities, uh, gift abilities, or anything like that. Um, I always tell Jonathan Pritchett I don't have any superpowers, never had experienced anything like that. Um, and I, I've never... Um, uh, gotten a dream from God that I'm convinced definitely was some kind of revelation from God. I've, I've never had anything like that. And, and I would be very skeptical about something like that. But at the same time, I am a cautious continuationist. I think some of the things uh, that God did in the New Testament, um, some of the charismatic gifts might still be going on. I just haven't experienced it myself, but I get it from the testimony of people who seem to have seem very uh, who I, I, I'm convinced are honest, genuine people who uh, claim to have had these experiences, and I don't think they're lying. And at the same time, I don't see uh, strong evidence in the New Testament that those things are necessarily not going to happen um, after the canon of the New Testament uh, going on into the future. So, uh, you know, that's that's interesting to say at the beginning. Again, I'm, I'm less convinced when it comes to like direct revelation and, and things like that. But I am going to tell you a little bit about a dream that I think I've had that might be an answer to prayer as we move forward through this. So that's going to be an interesting thing that we look at today. But on top of that, I also want us to um, I want us to consider something that's a little bit of an application point from the texts that we're going to be looking at today and for your life and for my life. And that is that um, and this is going to sound so like 
cliche bumper sticker sort of thing to say, but but I mean it. And I think that we, we know certain things, but we need to realize certain things. Um, Peter says that in, in the book of Second Peter, he's, he says in chapter one that he's not uh, he's not telling them things they don't know. He's trying to bring things to their remembrance. And so that's what I'm trying to do for you to get you to remember these things, to make them an active part of your thinking as you go through your Christian life and myself as well. And uh, on top of that, um, to to motivate us to to not think of these things as merely cliche. So with that said, what are what are what is that thing for today? What is that application that might sound that way? Well, the idea is that whether you are a Christian influencer, like someone with a big YouTube channel or a big ministry and your books are in Lifeway, or you're a famous Christian singer or someone famous for missionary work, um, whether you're that kind of person or whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're a student in eighth grade or whatever your position is, big or small, God is definitely at work in the economy of the kingdom, and you play a role in that. And so it is not only not necessary for you to think of your role in the kingdom of God as not that big of a deal. And so maybe you think your responsibilities, your morality, those things aren't as important. Or maybe you feel unimportant, even though you're doing your best. Not only is it not necessary for you to feel that way, it's actually wrong for you to feel that way. And I think uh, damaging to the kingdom for you to view yourself that way. And there are a lot of older people who are going to hear this, who feel that way about yourself. You feel maybe you feel like you used to be important, but you're not important now. Maybe you're a person who has what you considered a relatively low position, not only in the kingdom, but just in life in general. And so you don't think that you have much importance to the economy of God's kingdom. But I want you to know right now, I don't, I just, I don't, I'm not just saying this to make you feel better. In a sense, I'm saying it to make you feel worse. <laughs> I think that you, I think the people that feel that way are not just putting an undue uh, negative um, character on themselves. But I also actually think it's wrong for you to look at yourself that way. And so we're going we're gonna to see why that is. Now, there is an illustration that I almost feel bad giving you because it has been used by like every preacher who's ever, ever lived. Okay, well, that's not true, but at least in the past several decades. And so um, I'm, you may have heard this before. Um, also, I, I don't think this is apocryphal. I think that you can actually trace the history of this and that it's actually legitimately exactly the way it happened. But if, it's, if, there, if there is an inaccurate detail in this, it's easy enough to, to realize and recognize this has happened with people before. And it has to do with a person who probably could have looked at himself as not being that important. A simple Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. In 1854, Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Detroit. And one day he went to visit a 17-year-old boy who was in his Sunday school class who had little interest in God or religion. During his visit with this young man at his job in a shoe shop, he led the boy to a relationship with Christ. That young man was D.L. Moody who went on to become one of the greatest evangelists in the world, sharing the gospel with 100 million people, as well as founding Moody Bible Institute, which still exists, and the Moody Church in Chicago, which still exists, and it's absolutely incredible. You ought to go there sometime. But the story doesn't end there. Through his ministry, Moody was responsible for a London pastor named F.B. Meyer coming to faith. That is one aspect of this I'm not entirely sure about. I think actually, and I could be wrong, that F.B. Meyer was already a pastor, but uh, didn't believe in the sort of 
preaching that D.L. Moody did, and he became much more evangelistic after after hearing from Dwight L. Moody, but I could be wrong about that. Meyer was responsible, however, for J. Wilbur Chapman coming to faith, and Chapman influenced Billy Sunday, the famous baseball player who then became an evangelist, another prominent evangelist of the 20th century. Billy Sunday was integral in a man named Mordecai Ham coming to faith, and Mordecai Ham was the preacher responsible for leading a young man named Billy Graham to Christ. And Billy Graham has, by a big stretch, probably, uh, led more people to Christ over television, internet, from his lips, you know, presented the gospel from his lips to their ears via technology uh, and in stadiums, probably than any other Christian in history, any other single Christian. The point of this is that this line is traceable from Billy Graham back through a number of amazing preachers who have impacted the world greatly into the hundreds of millions for Christ, all the way back down a chain to a Sunday school teacher who had to muster up the courage to go into a shoe store where one of his Sunday school uh, students was and led him to Christ. Now, I've heard preachers present this, and I've presented it this way, that one day when we all get to heaven, uh, the new heavens on the new earth, uh, perhaps God will say, first, since the, if the first shall be last, perhaps he will say um, to Billy Graham, step out of the way. Mordecai Ham, step out of the way. Billy Graham, step, uh, Billy uh, Sunday, step aside. J. Wilbur Chapman, step aside. F.B. Meyer, step aside. Dwight L. Moody, step aside. Edward Kimball, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, that's not to detract from everything that those other men have done and women of God who've done incredible things. But it's just to show that perhaps let's just take a stay at home mom because I, you know, I'm in the homeschool community and I know there are a lot of stay at home moms who feel like society doesn't appreciate them or where they are at. And perhaps you feel like every day you're, you're doing all these things around the house. You're trying to take care of these kids. They don't seem to appreciate it. Your husband doesn't seem to appreciate it. It seems like nothing. And every day it seems like you're not getting anywhere because you've got to start all over again. And you feel like the world looks down on you. Society looks down on you. You perhaps don't have a lot of self-respect. Well, just know that what you're doing is important to the kingdom. And through a ripple effect could have an impact on the scale of Billy Graham. Even if all that is, and it should be more than this perhaps, but even if all that is, is sharing the gospel with your own children. Now, you can apply that to yourself if you're a, a kid in eighth grade, if you're an older person, whatever it is. You don't know what your impact is. And so it is not only unnecessary for you to look at yourself as having a small role, it's actually wrong and damaging to the kingdom if you look at it that way. If Edward Kimball had looked at it that way, um, Perhaps he wouldn't have gone into that shoe store that day and we wouldn't have this chain of incredible uh, impact for the kingdom. All right, that said, we're going to jump into this now, now that I've taken that much time to get started. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 40. And where we find ourselves now, if this is your first video here, is Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, which ended him up in Egypt. He was in the house of uh, the captain of the bodyguard, Potiphar, and he went right to the top. Potiphar trusted him so much, he put him in charge of everything in the house. And except Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. And when Joseph continually turned her down, she became jilted and as a result claimed that he had tried to uh, forcibly uh, sleep with her. And so her husband threw him into prison. But it was the king's prison, which may well have been kind of like a, a, a more 
uh, comfortable prison for political dignitaries who are prisoners. And uh, then he went right to the top as a prisoner there, it told us in the last chapter. And what does that mean? That probably meant that he took he was in charge of uh, people's work detail in the prison, uh, the food that they would receive, all those kind of things. He was more like an employee of the prison than he was a prisoner himself. And in fact, went right to the top so that even the the prisoners, the, the guards in the prison trusted him and put him in charge of everything. So you can't keep a good man down. He's gone right to the top in everything that he's done. Joseph just keeps being awesome. And so we come to Genesis chapter 40, verse one, which says, then it came about after these things that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in uh, in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the prison, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. And he took care of them, and they were confined. They were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, behold, they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, "Why are your faces so sad today?" And they said to him. We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do interpretations not belong to God? Tell it to me, please. Now, um, it, it's important for us to, to think a little bit about what's going on here. It's not exactly clear what offense was taken against the king. That's not entirely laid out for us. Uh, however, we're going to find out later in this chapter that um, it was the king's birthday coming up. And, uh, and so... This was the, the, these are the two guys that would have been in charge of food preparation. The cupbearer for the king would have been the person who stood next to him. Nehemiah had this role with uh, King Artaxerxes. You may remember uh, a cupbearer would hold the, the, the flask of the or, of the king and would sip from the, the cup before giving it to the king so that if there was some poison, some attempt on the king's life, well, then the cupbearer would take the hit instead of the king. And so this was a very important job. And so if you were going to poison the king, the cupbearer himself would be the person who would be, you know, in a good position to do that. Likewise, the baker who's preparing the food would be in a good position to do that. So Jewish tradition has been, and this actually fits really well, that perhaps there was some reason to think that the king, there was going to be a big festival for the king's birthday. And in preparations for that, uh, it was discovered that perhaps there was discovered some poison or some something that could act as a poison to kill the, the king in, uh, in, in the kitchen, I guess, whatever the equivalent of the kitchen is. And so uh, there was... Uh, some skepticism about who exactly was trying to do this, who was trying to kill the king, um, some suspicion about that. And so we'll just take the two most likely men, the men in charge of making sure that the king doesn't drink anything that kills him, and the man in charge of making sure there isn't any food that will kill him. We'll take them into house arrest while we perform some sort of an investigation to figure out what exactly is going on. That makes a lot of sense, okay? Um, and, and it will make sense more as we go on. We can't be sure about that. And it also could be, and I think there's actually some evidence with this when it comes to the baker, that uh, it's not necessarily that, that the baker himself is, is uh, the one who would have put poison into a food product, but one of the men working under him could have done it 
but he's the one responsible for making sure that doesn't happen. So there could be a lack of responsibility there. Okay. So, um, so that's, that's all really important. So, but, so that's one thing to say. Another interesting thing to say here is think about Joseph. Now we've seen Joseph as this man of incredible character, incredible integrity. And now here he is in prison and even in prison here he is in that situation. And what does he say to these guys who look dejected? He says, why are you guys sad? <laughs> you know, almost like this is the day the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it, right? Uh, why, why are you guys so sad? Well, there's a real good reason for us to be sad. We're in prison and the king is mad at us, right? But, but, but no, he's, well, why are you guys sad? This doesn't make any sense. A- anyway, th- this just speaks to the positivity, the person of Joseph even more. All right, verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph saying, to him, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. And I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Okay, now that's what he does. That's his job. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand as in your former practice when you were his cupbearer. Only keep, in, keep me in mind when it goes well for you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon." Okay, now uh, with this, notice a couple of things. First of all, um, he interprets this. This is from God. God is giving him this interpretation. And he's always said, he's already said, he's putting it all on God. He said in, in verse 8, do interpretations not belong to God? You know, in other words, you got to go to God. He, throughout this chapter, throughout this story, in fact, Joseph speaks of himself only in passing as a conduit through which God's going to interpret these dreams. He's constantly putting it off of himself and onto God so that people will understand in this um, in this in this society of people who are not trusting in Yahweh. He's, he's trying to encourage them to understand my God. It's not me. It's my God that's doing this. You might think it's just to sound spiritual if someone um, is complimented in church or in the Christian community and they say, well, hey, uh, all glory to God. And sometimes perhaps they are just saying that as a platitude. But the truth is, if it comes from a pure heart, that's exactly the attitude that we should have. Anything good that comes out of our lives is ultimately because of God's blessing on our lives and God's guidance and the way he works in us and the talents and gifts and abilities that he's given to us. And anything bad that happens, that's on us. So uh, that's a good attitude to have. And this is the attitude that Joseph has. Um, and so uh, and so this. So but then the second thing is notice that Joseph is and this is going to happen another time in this story. Joseph is opportunistic. Joseph recognizes, OK, I've been able to, by the power of God, interpret this guy's dream for him. And now perhaps he can do me a favor. Since I know, because of the interpretation that God gave, he's going to get out of this situation relatively soon. Maybe he can put in a good word for me at the king and get me out of this bad, tough spot. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking an opportunity when you have it, especially if you think God may have opened that door for you. Um, It was a long time deep into my ministry before I ever, uh, you know, for the first, oh, let's say 15 years of my ministry, um, I, I surrendered to the gospel ministry when I was 17 years old 
And uh, William Lane Craig one time laughed at me when I said that I said I surrendered to the gospel ministry. And we were having breakfast in Jerusalem, and he and his wife, and he looked at his wife, Jan, and he said, did you hear what he just said? She said, yeah, I heard it. And I said, what? What did I say? Because to say I surrendered to the ministry is a pretty common thing in uh, ministry circles. And she said he surrendered to the ministry as if he was, you know, on the run from it or the ministry captured him. But, um, yeah, that's that's, you know, when you have a story where William Lane Craig made fun of you, it's always good to tell that. But uh, but, yeah, I surrendered to the ministry. I I committed to the ministry when I was. 17 years old, I think, 16, 17 years old. I always get it mixed up. But uh, around that time that happened. So I surrendered to the gospel ministry at uh, 16 or 17 years old. And it wasn't for another 15 years um, that I encountered where two doors were open at the same time. Most of the time there was one door open and I would walk through that door. So if an opportunity opened up, I just assumed God opened that door for me unless it was really obvious he didn't. And I would walk through that door. There's nothing wrong with taking opportunities when they emerge, especially if you think it might be something God's doing for you. Um, Being opportunistic in a negative sense can be a a serious problem. But uh, Joseph sees an opportunity that perhaps God is opening. I mean, at this point, Joseph must be realizing that it looks like God is doing something remarkable through my life and and giving me opportunities he's the one who is guiding all of this and so here he's in a lowly state i mean you know like i told you um at the beginning of this you, you may be someone who considers yourself to be in a very low state well you're probably not in as low a state as in prison um maybe you are maybe you're seeing this somehow in prison <laughs> but but i don't i don't i don't think you're in as low a place as prison and, and yet Uh, this man who's in prison, God had big plans for. And so you're important to the economy of God. But uh, before we go on, let me, let me say something about the, the, um, the, the dreams here, because many times when people see dreams in the Bible, they just want to associate these with the same sorts of dreams that the, the way we look at dreams now in the 21st century or the way other religions speak of dreams. Well, in Walter Brueggemann's interpretation, a Genesis interpretation, he says this out of analytic psychology. There is a widespread view that dreams help us relive and work through dimensions of the past, which have been repressed. Dreams are said to be a part of a personal archaeology. But clearly the dreams of our text, he's talking about what we're looking at of Joseph today. The dreams of our text are not oriented toward the past. They are aimed at a future God will grant. Or from a perspective, current Jungian psychology treats dreams as data of a common unconsciousness, which is shared by all persons. That is, dreams are a way of discerning an unknown and generalized field of reality. Against that, the dreams of Genesis 40 are not general, but quite concrete and specific. They do not reflect a field of reality that already exists, but instead they assert a newness that is anticipated and yet to happen. Or thirdly, in some quarters, dreams are handled by a kind of psychological Gnosticism. This perspective assumes that dreams can be interpreted by special techniques used by persons with identifiable skills in the ancient world there were persons skilled in such techniques but this narrative makes a different claim the dream is a gift and its interpretation is a gift done not by a special skill or technique but by the power of god freely given to this particular man so these dreams that we're looking at here are not like the dreams of uh, that you the, the explanations of dreams that we see in these other areas. All right, verse sixteen. So he's given the, the interpretation uh, to the cupbearer, and it's pretty good. Three days, you're getting out of here. It's going to be like it always was. But now we go on to the chief baker. Verse sixteen. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, "I also saw in my dream." 
And behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all kinds of baked food for Pharaoh. And the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. With three more days, within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a wooden post and the birds will eat your flesh off you. So that's not a very good interpretation. I mean, it's good in the sense that it's accurate. It's not good in the sense that it's not good news for the baker. So the baker heard, you know, the baker heard this positive interpretation that came to the cupbearer. And he's like, well, that wasn't so bad. Maybe mine will come out sounding good, but it didn't. Uh, so this is going to be borne out as we move forward. But um, what, one thing to notice here is in his dream, the birds, uh, the bread rather was uncovered and birds were able to get at it. Now, he now whether it turns out that the Jewish understanding of this, that there was some attempt being planned on the life of the king and it was going to come through the baker, as we're finding out here, um, if that's correct. And I think that makes perfect sense of all of this, um, then it it. It, it could be that the baker himself was, was going to be intentionally trying to do this. Or it could be that someone working underneath him was, was trying to do this, and he should have known that or should have realized that he was in charge and responsible for that. One indication in this that, that could point to it being someone underneath him, not that it matters too much, uh, probably mattered to the baker, but not that it matters too much to us, um, is that the bread was uncovered and the birds were able to get at it. So maybe this is like the chief baker was... was not being responsible, and perhaps these other people were able to get at the food. Um, but in any case, he hadn't been responsible either way in, in his job, and so he's going to be killed for this. Uh, verse 20, so it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he held a feast for all his servants. So this is where we find out it's Pharaoh's birthday. He held a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So that's exactly what uh, Joseph said was going to happen, as was this. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, um, he's going to come back around to Joseph in the next chapter, so don't read that to say, he literally didn't remember Joseph or what had happened. I'm sure he remembered every aspect of those few days of his life very, very well. Uh, but when it says he forgot him, he just he, he didn't think to do what Joseph asked, which is put in a good word and get me out of this bad situation, at least not yet and not for a long time. Um, it would still be two more years before that would happen. So Joseph is just stuck. Um, and so, you know, think about the faith of Joseph in all of this. He's still trusting God. You know, that, I, you know, personally, I think this might have changed. I think uh, over the past few years, there may have been one time or another. There may have been one time where, in fact, during the recording of that, I think it's been since I started this Genesis series. So it's actually technically possible you find a, an episode where I say that I've never done this. And now at this point in my life, I think maybe I have. But I would hear people talk about getting angry at God for um, bad things that happened in their life. I had never experienced that for a long time. I'm still not exactly sure what I've experienced could be, uh, could be construed as anger toward God. I've just never seen the point in anger toward God. It's like he's God. You know, his way is right, whether I see how or not all the time. Uh, but, but people do get angry at God, and it's an understandable thing. 
I think. Whether it's a right thing is a whole different discussion, but it's an understandable thing that we mere humans would become angry at our situations and direct that toward the one we see to be in control of our circumstances. Um, why does Joseph not experience any of that in all of this? I mean, he's had some pretty rough stuff happen to him. Uh, but he, but he, and maybe he did, and we're just not told about that, but we don't see it here. It would still be two more years. Now, uh, before we move on to chapter 41, because we're about to encounter some things related to this Pharaoh directly. Now, Pharaoh was a title like king. So um, like earlier in the book of Genesis, Abimelech might have been. Um, but the, the thing about this that I think is important for us to remember is that it, the Bible doesn't always tell us which Pharaoh, it doesn't tell us which Pharaoh is in charge at a particular time. And so, you know, the question is, who was this Pharaoh? Does it really matter? Not a whole lot, but it's interesting to say what we can say. So according to the IVP Bible background commentary, um, it says uh, the Pharaoh of this Joseph story is unknown. Elements of the story have suggested to some a setting in either the Hyksos period, 1750 to 1550 B.C., or the Amarna age, 14th century B.C., when large numbers of Semites were either settled in Egypt or mentioned in Egyptian sources as serving in government positions. Our current knowledge of Egyptian history and practice would support this as the most logical and feasible choice. Biblical chronological information, however, suggests to some an earlier time in the Middle Kingdom, 12th Dynasty, 1963 to 1786 B.C. Without specific historical references in the story, it is impossible to associate the narrative with a particular reigning king. It is the uh, sorry. It is the practice of the author or authors of the book of Genesis to not mention any Pharaoh by name. This may have been intentional since the Pharaoh was considered by his people to be a god and the Israelites did not wish to invoke that name, that name of a god, since he was considered to be a god. So it's hard to say, but there's some uh, possibilities for you there. So let's move on and hear about this Pharaoh and what happened between he and Joseph. Chapter 41, verse 1 says, Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And behold, from the Nile, seven cows came up, fine-looking and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and thin, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. Then the ugly and thin cows ate the seven fine-looking and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, but he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, and so he sent messengers and called for all the soothsayer priests of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. So it says a couple things. It says he was troubled, number one. Uh, and also he knew there was something meaningful about this dream. Surely everyone experiences nightmares or bad dreams or confusing dreams. Most dreams that I have are confusing. And uh, so why, why is this a big enough deal that he would call everyone together? There was clearly something about this that deeply troubled him and, and showed him that it was meaningful in some sense. Um, now, obviously, in, in the ancient Near East, uh, dreams were important and thought to be important in a way that we don't consider them 
so much now. Um, some people do, but, um, but, but still, it seems like there was something really particular about this dream. Now, as I said at the beginning, uh, I don't, I've, I've never had a dream where I thought God was speaking to me. However, there was at least one instance in my life where I was, and I've talked about this before, where I was very concerned about death. My father was ra- had a rare blood, has a rare genetic blood disease. And uh, to the degree that if he falls and scrapes his knee or falls and a tooth is knocked out, he'll bleed to death. And so my whole life, people have told me that my father was probably going to be dead in the next couple of years. And so as a result of that, I really became bothered by death toward the uh, end of my 20s and wrote a book, Death is a Doorway, as a result to get it all out there. And so I could hold in my hand all the good reasons to believe that what the Bible says about the afterlife is true. And uh, during the midst of all of this, I was traveling on one occasion to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was begging God just to just to give me peace about death. Just please give me peace. And it's just one of the most genuine uh, prayers I've ever prayed. And um, and I think uh, I think he did that in two ways. I talk about both of those ways in the book. But the one I want to talk about here has to do with a dream. And it was and again, I don't think that this was a vision. I don't think that this was supernatural in any way. I don't think that uh, this was revelation from God. I just think, well, I'll just tell you what I wrote about it at the time. This is what this is what I wrote in Death is a Doorway on this subject. So I so I got to this hotel in Atlanta. I went to sleep that night. Sometime in the night, I awoke to find myself lying in a field of short grass, which was moist with dew. The sky above was gorgeous. Two things became immediately clear in my mind. First, I knew I had just gone to sleep in an Atlanta hotel. And second, I was convinced that I had just awoke in heaven along with many other believers. Looking around, I noticed brothers and sisters of the Christian faith walking or sitting in groups almost everywhere. In a way, it was reminiscent of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, and since this was a dream, it was probably influenced thereby. Unfortunately, there are not many exciting details to share, and in any case, if there were, they should be of little interest to you since this was merely a dream and nothing more. However, the point I wish to make is that while I was experiencing this dream, I was absolutely convinced that I had survived death, passed through the doorway, and would live in this incredible place free of problems forever. Here's the payoff. I had an emotion of pure joy, like nothing I could have ever imagined was possible. Many wonderful things have happened to me in my life, not the least of which was my own salvation. Still, the undeniable fact, at least I believed it was a fact, that I was in heaven created an experience of relief and happiness that words cannot express. Not only had I never felt this way, but I would not have known feeling this way was possible. The knowledge that this was pure joy was evident in my mind, and I knew that it could not be greater. Uh, I fell on my face in the dew-soaked field and worshipped. Unfortunately, it was just a dream, and I later awoke. What is the point? Why would I share something like this? I hate it when people look to their dreams for answers, and it should be mentioned that I had first scoured the Bible and spent hours on my knees in an attempt to overcome my troubles regarding death. Is there any benefit in my experience? As my seminary professor Ed Martin would ask, what is the cash value of this? The cash value is that I look back on this dream and I realize that something in it was real. The one thing that was actually real, and I don't mean real in some mystical or abstract way, was the emotion I had when it was happening. Though in reality, I was not lying in a wet field in heaven, but on a bed in an earthly hotel. I was actually experiencing that sense of pure joy. What was real was the emotion I was experiencing in the dream. That was real. 
It really hadn't ever happened uh, for me before, and it really had that night. What was meant, uh, what this meant was that I had found the form of pure joy. I had accessed something perfect when nothing in the natural world is perfect. If I had been Plato, I would have said that I had found the form of joy. Lewis would have said that my desire for something this world cannot provide was satisfied. This meant that it, not the dream, but the hope of an afterlife, was all real. If the form existed and the otherworldly desire was met, then I would one day survive death. I believe that many other Christians have had similar experiences. In other words, there was something real and pure and to me, previously inaccessible, which was pure joy. C.S. Lewis writes a lot about joy and I think has the similar perspective on it that I have. We almost never get that perfect joy. I think I accessed it in this dream. What I felt upon being in this heavenly place was real. The feeling was real, whether the heavenly place was or not in my dream. Now, perhaps that's getting a bit abstract in fact for you, but I believe God answered a prayer for me and I've had peace about death because of that and a few other things ever since, not least of which what the Bible has to say. But I think it's important just to note that though, though I've never had a visionary experience or a dream where I think God was speaking to me or something like that, I have had experiences in dreams where I think that God used the dream to my benefit. So don't completely count that out. Now, uh, let's talk about Pharaoh's dream for a minute. Steve Gregg points out that it's odd that these wise men the king had couldn't just guess about what was going on and approximate an answer. I mean, the king, Pharaoh, tells them what his dream was about these cows and these, uh, these stocks of grain or whatever. Why, why couldn't they figure this out? It, it doesn't seem that difficult to at least approximate an answer. It's about, Greg says, quote, cows and grain, food, and then there's fat ones, and they're consumed by skinny ones. An imaginative wise man of the Pharaoh might have easily picked up on this. Fat cows, fat grain, that speaks of abundant food. Skinny cows, blighted grain, that speaks of famine, end quote. The only thing that they might have had trouble with was knowing that the seven represents years. Um, that might have been difficult, but, but you at least could have approximated a correct answer on what was going on with this. And so it's kind of weird that they don't do that. I mean, after all, these are, these are people that have this job for the king. And since they're false prophets, they're probably doing stuff like this all the time in a convincing way to the king. And here they couldn't come up with what perhaps any of us could have come up with. So perhaps it could be, you know, Greg further hypothesizes, maybe it's the fact that maybe God blinded them in some way or confused them so that Joseph could be spotlighted in this story. Who knows? In any case, verse 9 says, Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. Then we had a dream one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we told him the dreams, and he interpreted our dreams for us. For each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. Pharaoh restored me in my office, but he hanged the chief baker. So this has been two years now, and finally this fellow has, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You know what? I do know a guy who might be of help. Joseph, poor Joseph in prison, two years, and this guy finally, finally, uh, makes good. 
All right, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent word and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, because now the interesting thing about shaving yourself was that um, Egyptians, we, where we have images of Egyptians, they're clean-shaven people. So uh, he, if he wants to look more Egyptian or more impressive to an Egyptian, he would shave himself. Whereas the, the Hebrews didn't shave themselves typically, and they had beards, but he shaves himself. So uh, this is an interesting thing. Just a passing note there. He came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. Now, there we see again, Joseph speaking. And in this moment, remember, it would actually be to Joseph's benefit not to mention anything about God just to interpret the dream I mean he would know for himself that it was God and praise God for that but he might even think it was part of God's plan not to mention that you know uh, that some other God that the Egyptians don't worship and and just just try not to upset the situation just interpret the dream and slide on through but he doesn't he again speaks of himself only as secondary to the to what God is doing that God is in charge of all of this his God um yeah. So uh, where am I? It has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. Uh, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 17, in my dream, there I was standing on the bank of the Nile and behold, seven cows, fat and fine looking, came up out of the Nile and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven uh, other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such cows, such as I've never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt and the thin and ugly cows ate the fir- the fat no ate the first seven fat cows yet when they had devoured them it could not be detected that they had devoured them so he's, this is an important feature here in this telling of the dreams that these skinny cows ate the fat cows but they didn't get fat they stayed skinny okay um so they they stayed they stayed skinny uh for they were just as ugly as before um, he says, yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them for they were just as ugly as before. Uh, then I awoke, I saw also in my dream and behold, seven ears of grain full and good came up on a single stock and behold, seven ears withered thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the soothsayer priests. But there was no one who could explain it to me. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. In other words, these, both of these dreams have the same interpretation. They're two different ways of giving the same message. God has told to Pharaoh what he uh, is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven thin and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine it is as i have spoken to pharaoh god has shown pharaoh what he's about to do behold seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of egypt and after them seven years of famine will come and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of egypt and the famine will ravage the land so the abundance will be unknown in egypt and the famine will ravage the land Oh, sorry. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine. So it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means the matter is confirmed by God and God will quickly bring it about. Okay. First of all, about famine in Egypt, again, back to the IVP back Bible background commentary. It says, although Egypt was one of the most consistent grain producing areas in the ancient Near East, 
Because of the regularity of the Nile floods, it was occasionally plagued with famine. Uh, sorry, let me read that with the right emphasis. The point is, it was producing a lot of things because it has the Nile River. That's an important thing. Even if famine is happening everywhere else, it's really bad when Egypt experiences famine because they at least had the Nile River that was, that was going through there. Um, such a disaster is mentioned in the visions of Neferti, an Egyptian document dating to the reign of Amen, um, Ammon Met, 1991 B.C. to 1962 B.C. Here, as in Joseph's narration, a vision is interpreted in a national calamity predicted. So we have some historical record of things like this happening. But but you'll remember even like um, uh, Abraham going down to Egypt when there's a famine because Whatever else was going on, there was always the Nile River. And so and, and in fact, we, we archaeologic in archaeology, we've discovered big, big storehouses like the ones mentioned in this story for precisely this reason. So if you couldn't find safety from famine in Egypt, it was really bad is the point. Now, what's this business about it being repeated twice? Well, the business about it being repeated twice, like with two different dreams, is that it validate it validates that this is coming from God. Um, and seems to show that there has already there was already an understanding during Joseph's day that that's how it worked, uh, because it's in state it's stated emphatically in Deuteronomy seventeen six and Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen, um, and it's referenced no less than five times in the New Testament that uh, that when you have two witnesses that it's established. So this is a this is an indication that this is coming from God, or that it's true, depending on the circumstance. Verse 33, so now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and appoint him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him take fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt as a tax in the seven years of abundance. Then have them collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up in the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and have them. Uh, guard it. Let the food be used as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. So we're, you're going to have these years of abundance. And so you want to you want to take a, an increased tax of grain and produce during those periods, store them away so that when these seven years of famine come, you'll have everything that you need. Now, this is funny because this is Joseph saying this. And he's and, and again, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of opportunity, especially if God's opened a door. Um, and so Joseph has explained all these horrible things that are going to happen. And then he says, you know what you should do, Pharaoh? You need to find a man who is discerning and wise. And let me spell out for you in multiplied detail what this discerning and wise man should do. So it's you're fortunate, Pharaoh, that you have a discerning and wise man like me here to tell you that you need to find a discerning and wise man to do all of these things. Wink, wink. I mean, that's basically what's going on, because obviously his advisors, these soothsayers are completely inept. Who are you going to get? Well, you're going to get Joseph. Why not? Um, verse 37. Now, the proposal seems good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. So then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? In other words, this, this is the guy. Now, the word for spirit that he uses here, or the word for divine spirit, is Elohim, which is a plural form. When you see the I-M on the end of a, of a Hebrew word like that, it's, it's a spirit. Now, this is what we have here. So, I, mean, I mean, I'm sorry, it's plural. It's like adding an S to the end of something that we say. So... Um, 
So it could be because God is also referred to as Elohim, interestingly. Um, but uh, it could be that what Pharaoh, being this polytheistic ruler in a polytheistic society, said was something like, um, uh, something like, in whom there is the spirit of the gods, you know. Can we find a man like this who has the spirit of the gods? It could be something like that. Verse 39. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. Yeah, obviously. You shall be in charge of my house and all my people shall be obedient to you. Only regarding the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I have placed you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And now that means that that would because they use the signet ring to stamp things and that sort of deal and, and show who they were and that they had a certain level of authority. This would almost be like giving you the ability to sign something in the name of the king to sign his name, basically. So you've got all the power of the king, except when it comes to the king himself is pretty much what we're saying here and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed ahead of him, Bow the knee. And he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. In other words, nothing of consequence is going to happen unless you say it can. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphnath Penei and gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went over the land, went out over the land of Egypt. Now, he receives this Egyptian name. What's up with that? Well, um, according to the IVP Bible background commentary, the intent of giving Joseph an Egyptian name is to complete the transformation process of the investi uh, investiture ceremony. Egyptianized, he is more likely to be accepted at court and by the Egyptian people. Um, this practice of renaming a Semite official is also found in the reign of Pharaoh Merenta from 1224 to 1208 BC. The meaning of Joseph's Egyptian name is uncertain, but maybe the God, uh, the God has spoken and he will live or the one who knows. Now, wouldn't that be something you're riding around in this chariot? People are shouting everywhere you go. He's the one who knows. Here comes the one who knows. Um, now, this was 13 years of waiting that Joseph has done in Egypt. <clears throat> We're about to find out that he was 30 at this point, but he's been, he was 17 when he came to Egypt. Now he'll be 30. So, and another thing important here is he's married this, this uh, daughter of this priest. Now that um, this never becomes a problem, or at least we're not told about it becoming a problem. But why was this included as a detail? Well, it was included as a detail, and perhaps Pharaoh did it because of this, that not only was he now in charge of everything in terms of the societal functions of Egypt, but just in case you wonder if, for religious reasons, there was anything he wasn't privy to, in this family, being married into this family, he would have had access to festivals and ceremonies, perhaps, so that if he could be a part of it in a bigger way, he could know more, perhaps have more access. The idea here is there's just nothing in Egypt that he doesn't touch now. And that's just another way of, of pointing that out. So that's, um, that's really important. He's in charge of everything. He went from being a slave to being a prisoner slave to being the most important and powerful man in all of Egypt, aside from the king himself, second only to the king. You know, I've already used one um, illustration that 
preachers often use. And I'll use another one that preachers often use. And that is, um, I don't know much about cross stitch, but it's my understanding that someone who's really good at cross stitch doesn't do this. It doesn't turn out this way. But many times in cross stitch, if you look on the back side of what you're doing here, it looks like in a finished work of cross stitching, it looks like it makes no sense. There's just string hanging all over it. Does it looks ugly? It doesn't. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. But when you turn it over on the other side, you can see this beautiful image, this picture that the cross stitch had made. And when you're looking forward in your life at your future, particularly if you're not very old, it, it looks like the back of that cross stitch where stuff's just hanging out there. Nothing in your life seems to connect or matter or make any sense. Seems all confused. It seems like there's a lot of mistakes. But if you follow the Lord and you walk um, in his ways, uh, the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And I believe that's true of women too. Then looking back on your life one day, you'll be able to look at the front side of the cross stitch and you'll see how the things that didn't seem to make any sense or fit together at all do. And God had an important role for you like Edward Kimball in his kingdom, in the economy of his kingdom. Now, we're not done yet, though. Verse 46 says, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he's now looking, he's now on the front side of the cross stitch. He can now see how things have turned out. Uh, and, and that doesn't happen with most people by the time they're 30, but, um, but deal with Joseph. Uh, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land produced abundantly. So he collected all the food these seven years, which um, occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now, obviously, these people would have already given a tax of some sort to the king for the purposes of the king and the maintenance of the city and those sorts of governmental reasons. Uh, so we, we, who knows what exactly happens here, but they likely already were being taxed something. So it could be that whatever they were currently being taxed, let's say 10%, since that was common in the time, um, the Joseph increased it to 20%, or it could be a 20% on top of whatever they were already paying in taxes in terms of their goods. Um, in any case, they paid less taxes than we do today. <laughs> But either way, it's uh, it's it's important to recognize that this arrangement worked out. Joseph was very shrewd here, such that not only did they get enough for the seven years of famine, but they actually had more than enough. So much so that people would be able to come from other lands outside of Egypt. And it tells us that verse 50 says, now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Um, whom uh, born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of own bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh for, he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Hey, he's in a new land. He's put down roots here. He has, a, he has established himself here. He's got a comfortable situation. He's got a name. He's got respect. He's got a wife. He's got a son. And with what's going on at home in a certain respect, he's I'm I'm over that. That's that's ancient history. Now, not entirely, because we are going to see that that he was thinking about this 
during this period of time how he was going to react. Or at least it seems that it was planned out um, when he reacts to seeing his brothers again. Because as his initial dreams illustrated, they were going to come and bow down. But um, at this point, he names his son Manasseh because he's, hey, I'm, which means to forget. I'm, I'm forgetting everything before. Um, and he named the second Ephraim for, he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Yes, he did. Verse 53, we're almost done. When the seven years of plenty, which had taken place in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt suffered famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over the entire face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Then the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. This is what the, the, this detail is included. Well, for one thing, it's true. They had so much. Remember, we learned already they had excess of what they'd need for the years of famine. So they had everything they needed for Egypt, but they also were able to sell off stuff to other lands that had to come to them because of famine. And uh, this is important for the story, the ongoing story, because Joseph's family is going to come. And so we're going to get to that in uh, our next um, episode. But here we are at the end of a couple of chapters where we see a lot about dreams. We see a lot about Joseph's intelligence and God's providential guiding of him such that even in prison, he would end up with these two guys who he could interpret their dreams. And this set off a whole thing. And there's a butterfly effect. You know, there may well be um, a butterfly effect from the things that are happening in your life where you're faithful to God right now, like with Edward Kimball, that that in the end, there is there is a harvest that you could not have imagined because of what to you seem like meaningless and mundane tasks right now, like doing laundry or your homework or being faithful to church or inviting someone to church or telling someone about Jesus. You just don't know what God is going to do with your life such that in the future you may look back or perhaps it will have to wait till eternity and you'll look back and see the other side of this work of art and it all fits together. I hope this has been a blessing to you. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.